Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to talk about feminist pedagogy. Uh, okay. How to teach. Oh. And then we are going to talk about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Ooh, I actually know about this one. All right. Let's, let's get into it. Whoop, whoop. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Episode 19, Feminist Pedagogy and the Triangle Fire. Okay. Okay. I An alternate title is Circles and Triangles. <laughs> I mean, it's very clever. <laughs> okay, but but it would require you understanding what feminist pedagogy is, so we'll get to that. Yeah, all right. Okay. Explain okay. explain circles. <laughs> well, first, I have to ask you, Thanksgiving, good? Yeah, no, it was really relaxing. Very easy, no pressure. I'm used to, like, driving around, usually, mm. and being in the car with two kiddos and making the trek to Connecticut for four hours, but... We just hung home. I made my very first turkey. Yeah. You made a turkey? I did. I'm I, very impressed. It was a woman's holiday. Yeah. So you, went, you went big. I did. I brined it. I pulled the gross things out from the inside. On your own? I did. With your hands? Yup. It was super gross. Okay. I gagged a lot. <laughs> um, but I did it. And then I basted that boy with some butter and herbs. You're a Butter boy baster. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Nailed it. Nailed and it. it was a very juicy bird. So So how long did you wait before you put up your Christmas celebration? We just did it today. So what are we, like three days out from three Thanksgiving? Three days. Yeah. We usually do it this time yeah. of year. Like, I usually we're pretty wait quick another after. week because I'm a Grinch. But oh. Boo. I didn't. I lo- I I'm like addicted out. to twinkle lights. Twinkle so. lights. I want all the twinkle lights all the time. Yeah. Sully has to, like, really force me to take them down when Christmas is over. Oh, my gosh. He's like, it's time. time. I'm like, no. <laughs> time to move on. They make me so happy. I, as a nerdy historian, am very into anything, like, vintage. Yeah. Decor, okay. So I like that. Yeah. So we've got some, I don't know, nothing... Nothing extra special, but we've got like what what's kind like kind of rustic looking items on our tree. Oh, like and like very... knitted stockings, you know. How a very Puritan of you. Yes, I try. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know I go very Scandinavian. Mm. I'm like the I want the original Klaus, like uh. Sant the original Santa stuff, like yes. from like the Norwegian world yes. and like Sweden. And, <laughs> I want all those things. Nice. I don't know. And then, like, of course, I have all my – the cool thing when my um, – all of our cousins get married, my grandmother would send you a box of Christmas ornaments from her tree. Oh. Which I thought was a really nice tradition. And then when I got married – sure she has tons, too. You acquire them. Well, she would give you, like, five or six. It wasn't, yeah. like, this huge box of ornaments. But those are so precious to me now that I hang – I have the one that she got the first year they were married – Oh. And it hangs on our tree. Yeah. And so it's the first year we got married. I hung it on our tree, which was really cool. So it always makes me, like, super weepy when yeah. we hang our tree up. But 
Yeah. It's also, I forget I have it, and it always surprises me every year I open the You're like, Christmas. oh, yeah, I have this thing. Yeah, and it's so awesome because I don't have a ton of stuff from my grandmother, but it's a really nice little tradition. And it's, you can tell it's super old. It has, like, these cute little turtle doves. Yeah. It's very Whoa. sweet. Yeah. I'm enjoying making our own traditions in our family. Like, yeah. You know, because it's all new, and our son's, you know, young, so it's it's sort of this new thing. and. I learned a valuable lesson as a new mom. I got out the ornaments, and, you know, they're, like, fragile. And my <laughs> son picked one up that looked like a ball. And just chucked and it. And promptly chucked it across the room. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, learned that those break next. <laughs> yeah. I know. It was tough. Like, last year, Luke was just starting to walk, crawl, run. Um, and so we really didn't hang anything low yeah. on the tree. Um, and this year he like really understands that he can touch the tree, but he got really frustrated because he couldn't hang anything. Like nothing was hanging for him. <laughs> so he just started chucking ornaments at the tree. And I was like, um, we're just patience. Like <laughs> figure this out. Yeah. So, and then it was really cute. Like his older brother, Nolan was just like teaching him how to hang things, which was super sweet. Yeah. He's like, no, look, Luke, you just... This is how we do it. Yeah, just take your time. Yeah. It was just like the sweetest little moment. I was like, oh, all right, I like this. This would be cute. Oh, my god. But Luke has zero patience in his little two-year-old body. Yeah. (laughs) He just shucks the ornaments. (laughs) That's awesome. That's good. Well, I've been thinking a lot about school because I'm headed back to school. I know. So you were remote, right? We were remote for a couple weeks and so we're back in person. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about, um, about this theory about feminist pedagogy. Um, that, so pedagogy is basically like the science or art of teaching. Okay. And, um, and, and so like all the skills that come along with that, like scaffolding and, Um, Like all the nuances. All the nuances of this field. And we don't need to get into, you know, teacher education to to discuss this. Um, I think it's something that many people can appreciate. And I was actually thinking that you might, like, be interested in this theory um, in a business perspective. Because I imagine there are lots of things that people in business are doing that are very similar to what we're talking about. Um, so, so. But, Kelsey, I'm always interested in what you have to talk about, (laughs) whether it applies to my life or not. So, um, I am a, I'm kind of an old school teacher. And, and despite the fact that I am, like, the content that I bring in is kind of new school, um, I think that the way that I teach is still very, like, direct instruction-y, and it has been my... <laughs> is, that a, is that a term? <laughs> direct instruction. Well, direct instruction is, like, me, teacher, telling you student information. Like, very lecture-based. Yeah. And history, like, lends itself to that I really mean, big time. Well. It's a, such a good storytelling opportunity. Yeah, and I, that's also how I justify it to myself. Um, but it's really not current practice, and I'm really bad at it. And I was fortunate to work with um, a colleague who modeled for me how to get out of that habit. And part part of it for me is that's how I learned. Yeah. Right? Um, I liked presenting in school and college, and so, like, that it's just sort of, like, plays to my strengths. And so, and I feel good about it. I think people 
I, I've gotten a lot of positive reinforcement from students and adults in the room alike that say like, wow, this really worked. Like you're really good at that. And that's yeah. kind, but I, I know that it's something that I need to sort of like get away from. Yeah. And I think there's definitely teachers that probably sway on the opposite end of that and lean on the tips and tricks and tools and paper and um, yep. all of the little, you know, kind of added learning tools versus being a lecturer that yeah. maybe they're not as comfortable in that space. Yeah. So I try to break my course up into in my, my classes up into thirds. So students do some sort of activity to like get them warmed up to class. There's like the middle third is, is some sort of direct instruction. And then the final third is some sort of investigation or inquiry. How long are your classes typically? 45 minutes. So like 15, 15, 15. That's a long time. It's, it's uh, it feels really fast. It, go, it especially when you break it up into thirds. It's like boom, boom. Like, oh yeah, you're and you're like, like running into the next thing. Yeah. Do you, as a teacher, like know what like things that you want to spend more energy on that could take a little longer that you know yeah, you have some you build in the space if you need it. Totally. And so so you know we'll get into a pro like I also am a big proponent of project based learning and so you know um, we'll we'll break class for a week and be working on something you know okay so 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 that whole like thirds per model is is sort of like a typical class but we might be in a project we might be doing something else um so the problem with uh so i had a i had a realization that i might be sexist and um (laughs) (laughs) that was so loaded what i know so i so i give an award my school does an awards thing every wait sexist towards what sex women oh yeah so bear with me so we do this This awards thing every spring and um i give an award for critical thinking in history class and the award goes to a person from each of my history classes that stood out in their engagement in class they're asking questions of being like wait yeah what right that kid the one who like talks who debates who is willing to like push me and be like, I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. Like, all right. Yes. Good. Let's talk about that. The kid who shines in debates. AKA your, your favorite students. AKA (laughs) the kid, they might not be. I mean, I gave it one year to this kid who drove me nuts all year because he argued with me every day, you know, but But he was was engaged. He was engaged. And I was like, great. Like, (laughs) I'm fine. (laughs) So, one thing that I realized, though, in so I've been teaching for, you know, almost a decade. I've given that award to two girls. Whoa. And I give it to three kids a year. And so, th- like, that's a lot of boys that I have recognized Do for their Do the students time. know about this award when you start your course? Um, I don't think kids are very aware of them. Like, I don't think they realize that it's the same, like, award year to year. So something, you know, not – you can cut this out later if you want to. But something I learned in, in business is if you don't show someone the goal, it's very hard to get toward. Mm. So you almost have to, you know, I'm thinking about how you can challenge yourself to find more women yeah. to give this award to. Yeah is if you say at the beginning, I'm looking for the girls to speak louder. Yeah. And just say it out there. Like, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah. And this is the behavior I'm looking to model. And the reason I want to see that is this. Yeah. Not only for this award, but in life. 
Yeah. I am going to challenge you to be a participant. Yeah. And the best way to do that is by showing these behaviors. Well, so, so there's so much to what you're talking about. And I, I really like the idea of like goal setting. Just like call it out from call day one. Call it out. This is what we need. And I do have, like, we have a discussion rubric in my class that basically outlines exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. But the, and the, but the girls do speak up when it is a graded moment in class. And the other thing that's dawning on me as I think about my experience with this award, but also with lots of girls in class, is that I have had some of the smartest kids to come out of this community in my classroom. I've had many female valedictorians in my classroom, and yet they don't get the award. Why are these brilliant women in my class not getting this recognition? Yeah. Because they're, and, and the, the answer is, they're not speaking up, they're not outwardly engaging in class. And then I thought about myself as a student, and I said, if I was in, I love this subject. If I was in this classroom, would I get this award? Would I get this recognition? Would you debate? Would I debate? Would I would you challenge? Would yeah. I would I qu- just ask questions? Would I know enough to ask uh, about things going on in this general field or topic right. to ask yeah. questions? And I think the answer is a resounding no. Really? Yeah. And so uh, at least maybe now I would, but not when I was 16. Oh. Well, maybe as you know me now. I'm relatively similar to how I was in high school, but I asked all the questions. I was the engaged debater. I yeah. would challenge an educator. Um, I often would win those ridiculous awards that meant nothing, but it was because I was fearless to fail. Right. And I think that, on you know, a, a large number of my friends growing up and, and women that I know have a real hard time failing. Mm. I think... So, so uh, my first thought was like, are girls not confident enough, right, to speak up? And so I looked, I turned to the literature and confidence is something that both men and women ch- struggle with. So it's not. Yes. Yep. And, and so, so <clears throat> what is. What, and that comes with age. Yeah. And so I was thinking back to all the studies that I know that I've learned about, about how people behave in classrooms. And we know that. Women and marginalized people who have been marginalized um, do not speak up in class, do not perform well when there's really no reason why they shouldn't. One really famous study, um, they had a, um, a, group, a mixed group of boys and girls take a math test. Okay. In the control room, they were just given the math test. In the um, test group... When the teacher distributed the math test, the teacher said, hey, guys, I want everybody to work really hard on this. They have found that there is no difference between how boys and girls perform on this assessment. That's all. Just a little introduction from the teacher. And in that room, in the test room, the girls actually performed better than in the room where the teacher said nothing. And so what did they learn? They learned that stigmas from outside of the classroom Mm -hmm. come in. And unless we in the classroom address those things, 
nothing like the girls will perform in that case the girls will perform worse they've done similar studies with like african-american students and yeah and any marginalized group right so so there is in our society a dominance hierarchy and it's you know kind of the typical like white male at the top right and i'm shocked kelsey (laughs) right and so in this (laughs) dominance hierarchy and, and men and women have their own dominance hierarchies, right? Like, like, and, and um, but also there's sort of like the overarching one. And um, in, in these hierarchies, men are conditioned to compete with one another for sort of that like alpha position. Okay. And in, in that competition, the power and the prestige and respect that they want is to be seen as that man who stands up, speaks up, is sort of like a dominant presence in the room. Okay. But for women to dominate in the female dominance hierarchy, um, women are competing to be more agreeable. That is like the, the sort of like feminine hallmark of like she's this I mean think about think about all the conditioning like this is this is bringing in a little bit of psychology here sure yeah on playgrounds when you see a boy this is like the classic like gender studies like okay you see a boy off on his own on a playground he's industrious he's adventurous look at him go you see a girl alone on a playground why doesn't she have any friends? What's wrong with her? And yeah, like that she can't be fine by herself. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that this is correct, but there's something in our social structure that says women need to be interconnected. They need to be agreeable. They need to be pleasant. When and this is where the B word comes in, right? Yeah. Like if she's not these things. When she's feisty, she's you know, the bi- she's a bitch. And Oh, I thought the B word was boss. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because that's all I ever wanted to be. Yeah. But I think I mean I think you are so not this person and that you, you have No, to but I can challenge. absolutely see that. But it you know, those outside forces that you're talking about from that study. Yeah. You know, you also have to take into account location, situation. Yep. How you're raised, what your household is like, all those things come into play in that totally. circumstance. And, and to, the two girls who got the award from me, I was thinking about them a lot today. One of them, her mom is th- the most outspoken person I've ever met in my entire yeah. life. And she, I just, I love this woman's, this girl's mom. And, you know, the fact that she comes in and is just a powerhouse in the classroom, it's not like her out of nowhere. She comes from a family that, that values that. Yep. And, and so encourages, she, and it, encourages and it. Fosters and it. They, yeah. They probably argue at the dinner table and, you know, in a, in a kind of intellectual way. Right. And, yeah. And, and so, yeah, you're totally right. Like different people might defy those, those cultural norms based on, you know, family norms. Yeah. Um, but women are, are really conditioned to be agreeable. And, um, when you as a woman speak up, you are threatening your agreeableness. And how many women do you know who, when they speak up, like, I think of some of our friends at book club. You know, they, they leave book club and they 
second guess everything that they said in oh, sure. book club. And, oh, I wonder if they took it this way. And I well, wonder, there's also this thing in, you know, in large organizations when you're in a conference room and you're all meeting and, you know, different ones. Women will preface what they say before they say it yeah. versus just making a statement. Yeah. So they'll say – and they'll ask if they can speak. Yeah. Can I just say something? Let me raise my hand. Can I talk? Can I, yep. do, can I make a point? Yep. And it's like, why are you asking for permission to speak in a room where you're equal to all of your peers? Right. And men do not. They're like – you know, they just kind of come out and say what they what they yeah. have. And then women will also do this thing where they say, I think – yeah. Or I feel. And then again, and you're prefacing what your statement is going to be versus just owning it. Just owning it. And so there's these ways that these things show up and, and to challenge well, those. The I'm sorry pandemic that we're Oh, gosh, you know? yeah. Thankfully, that one I feel like is dissipating. But it also is, you know, it it's awareness that you, these are norms that have been kind of ingrained in you forever and ever. And like you're saying, those dominance, the triangle of. Hierarchies. Hierarchy. You know, those are some ways that you give up your power. Right. By doing those small things in in context. But why, I mean, why do I say I'm sorry? Why do I say I feel, I think, I da-da-da-da, because I I exist in this world, I exist in this society where people measure me first by how agreeable I am, second by whatever my idea is. Whereas for for men in this in this same structure and same society, it's first by how confident you appear, right? Second by your ideas, right? And and it's like this posturing, you know, that that men do and women do it too. It's just a different, totally different form of posturing, right? In my experience, I feel like, and I would love to like keep data on this, but I feel like when I act feminine, I get my way more than when I come in and just say what I think. Um, and I, I don't know, like, I don't have the data to back that, but that feels correct. Um, well, if it feels correct, you're probably right. And in your experience, you know your own experience, so you're going to own what you have been through. But I do think that there is something to wanting to be liked. Mm-hmm. And... Well, teachers are probably... Oh gosh! Like I would, Im- I would imagine that you guys are at the top of that pyramid of, you just want to be liked. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, you know, I don't necessarily need are you my psychoanalyzing me. Now? I'm just thinking, okay. you know, I don't need to be liked to get my job done, but it certainly gets my job done easier if I am well liked. Yeah. So how can I build a bridge with someone through friendship and relationship and and you know yeah. do all the ships? Right. But well, you don't have to necessarily all the time. I I wonder if it's different for male educators than it is for female educators. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and there there are so, I mean, you could talk about classroom management um, and, like, how men and women navigate that differently. Um, I've talked to my husband about this, and he definitely has brought up those topics before of how different the women are in his school in particular, of how they manage and how they um, – steer a classroom Mm -hmm. and it's just completely different i mean his presence he's a gym teacher he's loud so he immediately will walk into the room and the kids are excited because they it's playtime but then immediately he's very effective of like just being super loud and has a presence and it's like yeah if a female gym teacher were to do the same i wonder if it would have the same reaction yeah 
I remember I, one of my mentor teachers was like 6'2 and big. Yeah. And, he, you know, I, I taught a lesson in front of his class one time and, and he said, you know, it's really great. We got to work on classroom management and I have nothing to contribute to tell you how to do it because when I walk in a room, people just go silent. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay. So uh, I had to work on my own to figure out how to do that. Um, so, so I think though that this gets to, there are these structures, these hierarchies into yeah. how we behave that have nothing to do. Like, like here I am a teacher saying, please speak up in my class. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions. And yet only a few and usually boys do that in my classroom. Mm. And so how do we change the dynamic of the classroom to get them to understand that I want to hear it other than saying it right other than saying and, and begging them to speak up and well it's that me. but then it's also you know thinking about how do you get the student who is loud to be a listener be a listener right how do you get that boy to understand or how do they, how do you get them to know cues of how to include someone's thoughts or encourage them to continue down a path you know that's the other thing is that you can be a cheerleader really easily if you're loud. And that's something that I've learned over my lifetime is I don't need to be the loudest person in the room. <clears throat> but I can certainly amplify someone else's voice. Yeah. And so I'm constantly like, oh, this person. And I'll say their name and bring them in. I'm like, they gave me this idea the other day. And this person talked about this. And, you know, how do I bring their voices in so that they're still heard even though they're not speaking? Yeah. And there's opportunity to do that in a classroom totally. with that loud student too. Totally. So there's a lot of research into how you seat kids and get them in circles, get them looking at each other rather than yeah. looking at me and creating Or like, this, like the backs of each other's heads. Yeah, ping pong situation where like everyone's facing the teacher. So teacher speaks, kids respond, and you know, it goes back You always forth. knew you had a fun teacher when you sat in a circle. You're like, yes. yes this is going to be good. <laughs> right. And COVID's totally messing with all Oh, I know. That does suck. Whatever. But... Um, the other theory is doing a Socratic seminar. And this is yes. how okay. my colleague down the hall taught all the time. And I, she was younger than me. She, I was like her mentor teacher. And I would go in her room and just watch. And I love that because she had mastered something that I really needed to work on. Okay. So, well, so talk to people about the Socratic method and what that is. Socrates, you know, his, so he was, um, a, you know, ancient Greece philosopher. His idea was that you get your students to ask questions. And so I ask a question like, Brooke, what would be the best way to get kids to engage? And you respond by asking me a question back. Well, you know, what, like, what is... What's the average age of your students? Right. And I How, say... What well, are the genders in right. your classroom? And then I say... And, and, and the whole idea is that these questions are building on each other so that we are getting to something more meaningful... Right. ...by the asking of questions. And, um, and so, so Socrates, um, it cracks me up because I'm like, hey, do this idea. Socrates in his time was prosecuted for, um, how his teaching methods. Right. And he was basically given a choice, which is to like renounce how he taught <laughs> or to die. And he chose death. And I'm like, okay. So, so, anyway, <laughs> so do that. Choose death. No. <laughs> Back it up, back it up. But okay, anyway, so feminism. 
Um, so, so the reason this has sort of become a feminist thing, and feminists, remember, feminism is about way more than gender and way more about than women's rights. Right. It's about, like, the dismantling and, and emboldening of all sorts of people and, and trying to... To help, like, men and women navigate... Have better have better relationships have and better, better conversations. Yeah. yeah. So, so, we're asking questions. And by asking questions, we're getting two good things. And so, they have... The teachers have now taken this idea and really structured it in a in a really awesome way so um we have all these inquiries up on our on our website and um people can go in and, and lesson plans inquiries yep. I call them inquiries because they're questions right let's investigate this question together and you can sit the the students in a circle and the teacher the, the if you my new ma- mantra is I am succeeding if I am talking, if I'm not talking. Right. If the kids are talking, and you know, there's this phrase like never say something in a classroom that a student could say. And I love that. And so anytime I realize a kid knows something, I'm like, hey, you want to introduce this topic to everybody? I love that. So, you know, like get the kids to say it rather than me. And I can fill in the blanks if they've left something out. Right. You know, so, um, but. I'm succeeding if I if I say nothing. So you get the kids in a circle. They have the documents, the historical, you know, yeah, information. information in front of them. They might have had some time to look at those things it, it, before. And you have them investigate in a discussion um, the, these documents. And so I've always said, okay, I can do that. And then I put the kids in a circle and the same three kids who always talk, talk. And so my colleague down the hall figured out this ingenious way to get everybody to talk. I'm like edge of my seat. So she gave everybody a cup and she gave everybody tokens. And the tokens represented how many times she wanted them to speak during this discussion, during okay. this seminar. And um, so in front of you, in front of me and everybody else in the discussion is a cup with tokens. And... When you make a substantive contribution to the discussion, you move one of your tokens into Into the the cup. cup. Okay. You know, and everybody else around you knows, I have spoken. Right? (laughs) And depending on how long you have, you could have more or less tokens. Right. Um, I did one of these over Zoom with students the other day, and I didn't have time in the Zoom that I had for everybody to contribute multiple times. And so I said, one token, you know, one token to move in. Yeah. And you could make the tokens something fun or quirky, and, you know, it could be be anything. Yeah. Um, and, And if... You make a substantive contribution, but you're not confident enough to move the token yourself. I, the teacher, can walk over silently and move the token for you, right? To tell, like, to reinforce, like, that was awesome. Good job. Here's your token moved. So clever. Um, and what my colleague did was all, she just walked the whole class. Just She's on the outskirts. Yep. Silently moving tokens for kids. Um, and then the other thing is, once you get all your tokens into the cup... You kind of just hang back. Listen. Yeah. Listen. Remind everybody that so-and-so had a really cool idea. Get them to come in. And so those talkers, they still get their time. They can get those five tokens. Oh, yeah. And they're feeling good. They're feeling good. 
And then they go, shoot, I said all of my ideas in the first three minutes. Crap. And they're not cut off. They can keep contributing. But now they are conscious. very conscious of the fact that they're done and everybody else still has stuff to say. And as a facilitator of these, sometimes I will chime in when I know that three kids still haven't spoken yet. Yeah. And so I'll say, okay, this would be a really good time to chime in. And, um, and it just, it makes everyone conscious of how much they're contributing and how much they're actually listening to one another. I love it. And I don't know if that translates well to a business meeting. I it actually, it's so funny. Like, so I have been doing this training, um, with some of our new hires for this uh, one area in our business. And it's been really fun. It's how, it's how you show up. It's how you become a trusted advisor. So the training is all about how you make introductions to yourself and others and how you build a team through connection and blah, blah, blah. It's really fun. So anyways, last week we, they had to present their introduction. Um, and I did a roulette wheel. Mm. I was at random picking people because I was like, no, everyone's going to go. But I didn't want the most confident people to go first. So I told them that there was a roulette wheel that I was spinning but I actually just picked the less confident people to go first mm-hmm. so that they they would go versus kind of like hanging back and waiting for a volunteer or letting the really outspoken, like kind of louder, gregarious guys in the group, um, which oddly enough were mostly men that were like that. Um, they went last mm-hmm. and they were great. Yeah. But they were the exclamation point on the conversation versus the lead. And I wanted the less confident people to go first so that they didn't hang back and feel that imposter syndrome or less confident or that they didn't want to share. They wanted to readjust. It's like, nope, get it out of the way. You go. And I, I told them there was a wheel, but there wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the nice thing of being virtual too. Um, but it's just an interesting method to the madness. But I love this token idea. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a million <clears throat> other little tricks that one could use in a classroom to get people to speak up. One that I do a lot is, um, especially for my introductory activities, it's usually some sort of question that I pose to them as they walk into class that they need to respond to. Um, that, that question, I always have them answer it in writing quietly before we talk about it okay and the reason I do that is because if I pose a question to the group usually like first of all for an introductory activity like I'm not asking rocket science yeah no you're trying to get a thought provoked like opinions or you know like ideas or recall this thing and usually there's multiple answers to whatever it is I'm asking and so if you just ask the question to the classroom the, the loud kids speak up first, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, what they said. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, there, first of all, there are multiple answers here. So that person is very smart, and they do engage, and they are loud, good for them. But that's only, like, one of the answers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, where, you know, give me more. Um, so... So I really, I really love all of those things. And, and there are so many moves now to requiring 100% participation in class. And there's a million strategies to doing that. But I don't think people make the connection of this isn't just about checking in that all kids are learning. It's also about dismantling these hierarchies. And even, yeah. if, even if those things exist outside this room, 
that's fine. But we need, we need people who listen. We also need people to speak up and to know that their, their contributions yeah. are valid and, and needed and that their silence actually hurts the learning environment. Absolutely. I love that. All those concepts and the ideas. I think too, of like calling it out. Yes. One, but teaching them what it looks like to be an active listener. That's a skill that many adults still struggle with. Right. And we constantly are having to reiterate on how to say the same thing 10 times to get someone to say like, you know, Steve, you have to stop talking over Linda. She's trying to say something. Yeah. It's like, please stop. Yeah. And if no one's going to say it, then it's going to continue to happen. And that's the other thing, too, is you can't just sit silently by when you see someone being steamrolled or someone not saying something. Right. And the, I mean, the other thing here is like, we've been talking about why are women left out of history? And we've taught one of, one of the big answers that we've come back to a couple times is that women don't see themselves in this field, right? They don't, they don't learn about women. They don't see themselves. So they're not attracted to it. And therefore we have fewer women historians who are writing fewer books on women if they do write about women. And and so the, it's cyclical, right? But, but you know, there are women historians out there who write about men. Yep. Great. Do that. Keep doing that because we need to revisit every topic that's been covered and, and, yeah. and think about those things. And, and but this al- could also be a go, way. Yeah, to your theme, though, is that, you know, ultimately women to feel successful in society had to be well-liked. So they're not going to be these outrageous women all the time. They're, it's going to be fewer and, and less than. Yeah. And it's finding them and highlighting them. Yeah. That's... But, but let's start in our class. Yeah. Find those <laughs> girls. Like, I, like I, it's almost embarrassing that the two girls that got my award are the girls who defied the odds, said, F it, I'm speaking up. Boom. <laughs> you know? But, like, they actually, like, even though those girls are awesome – they don't represent but, all the girls in the no. room. Like most girls in my classes are quiet. And but I also wonder what so those. What am the, I doing to bring? Yeah, that? exactly. But what are those male counterparts in those classrooms with those girls that you gave the awards to? Mm. Were there cheerleaders? Were there men that were also defying the dynamics and letting them, you know, speak and say what they needed to say, or calling out and be like, "What did Becky want to talk about?" One of these students in particular. I don't think she needed anybody to give her permission <laughs> to speak. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, I think that that part of it is the dynamic. And so I didn't, the teacher didn't change. So the students in the room must have changed yeah. and shifted something to create that space. Absolutely. Okay, Brooke, let's take a little break. Ah, breaks. For lesson plan ideas and how to teach women's history, visit our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Remedial Herstory. If you think what we're doing is needed, please consider joining our Patreon community. Patreon allows you to sponsor a podcast with a small donation. Patrons get access to bonus materials, extended episodes, insider information, and gear. Give at whatever level you can. Patrons who give at the $25 tier will receive a Remedial Herstory mug and a booklet of all the Remedial Herstory lesson plans and resources. This episode is sponsored by our patrons. 
thank you to Kent and Jamie Heckel from Ohio, Sarah Reardon from New Hampshire, Leah Tanger from Connecticut, and Bridget Erlinson from Connecticut. You guys make this show possible. Welcome back, Brooke. Oh, we're back. We're back. So, we were talking about Socratic seminars. Yes. Circles, where you get the kids in a circle. Oh, I'm with you now. You get it? Now we're going to talk about triangles. All right. And rather, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. Have you heard of it? I have. Okay. When? In a podcast I listened to, but I also learned about it in college. Mm. Or actually, no, not college, but a class I took after college. Okay. So, I did not learn about this in high school, college, none of the above. Okay. I learned about it in, after I became a teacher and was doing research. So, I mean, I think the big reason I have learned about it is it changed a lot of labor laws. Yeah. Um, so, which for your work. Yeah. So, you know, being in human resources, you kind of learn about the big moments. And yeah. this was definitely one of them. This is a huge one. So I teach about it when I'm teaching about the Industrial Revolution and um, progressive reforms in the turn of the century. And I think that it it 100% must be taught in in secondary classes. Yeah, it's a great topic to talk about. It's a huge tragedy in American culture, but it also changed so much. Yeah, I think of it kind of as like, if you're not teaching suffrage, yeah. you're not teaching history. Right. And you're not teaching women's history. And so, like, if you don't teach this, not only are you not teaching about industrial history, you're not teaching women's history. And, like, right. what an amazing opportunity to teach women's history alongside your very normal curriculum. Yeah. Right? Very typical curriculum. Um, so, what is this event? What do you yeah. remember about it? Um, I knew that it was a lot of women and, like, teenagers or young adults that were working in the factory at the time, um, and that the accident happened, that was a huge fire, and a lot of people died. It was in New York, right? Yeah. So, (coughs) whoa! (coughs) Wrong tube. Wrong tube. So, uh, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was just one of many of the garment factories in New York City around the turn of the century. Right. These garment factories are competing for, um, you know, prices and, um, but there, there are so many immigrants coming over and this is, so like, when you're teaching about the Industrial Revolution, I really think that there are like three major causes of the Industrial Revolution. Okay. There's new technology. That's just sort of transforming the economy. Yep. Um, think trains, think steel, think skyscrapers, elevators, electricity. Like Yeah, it was age of an innovation. Te- it, yeah. It's like everything's blowing up. Um, so technology. Um, the government's policy is very hands-off. They call yep. it laissez-faire economics, where the government is like letting businesses run wild. And, um, and as a result, they are you know, forming these monopolies and just things are taking off. Um, The other big reason is there's a huge labor pool. 28 million immigrants come over to the United States in, like, in the post-Civil War period. 
and up twenty million. Twenty eight million. So basically, and a lot of them came through Ellis Island, Ellis Island, Angel Island in California. Yep, you're seeing a huge influx of immigrants that are very um, like quote unquote different than the already here immigrants because <laughs> yeah. we're all immigrants <laughs> and um, the, the current immigrants, the current immigrants. And, um, and so, so yeah, so you've got this dynamic and then, so this is a really, um, dangerous dynamic though, like even though it is cre- and you know, when I teach about the industrial revolution, when I teach about economics in general with my students, I help them understand that there are lots of measures yeah. of an economy. And so when we say- You mean it's not just the stock market? They, right. <laughs> so it's not just the stock market, but it's also like, you know, GDP, a measure, gross domestic product, a measure of the economy. Okay. Um, and and if you look at the Industrial Revolution, it's a boom, right? You can see that there is so much growth in that in those measures. Um, but in terms of uh, worker stress level, quality of life, happiness, like they didn't care. <laughs> there was no HR, like, <laughs> right? Like, are those things also? Um, also fruitful during during this time are those things also booming um and and maybe because you have a huge growth of the middle class um but you also have huge numbers of people living in poverty monopolies lead to um increased um, prices for consumers and that's not good and there's a lot of monopolies coming out of this time it's not until teddy roosevelt that you see people like really trying to you know break up these monopolies and trusts so the triangle shirtwaist is wrapped up in this this laissez-faire capitalist system right and the workers that work there are mostly immigrant um, people, garment workers across the board tended to be women, although of course there are men that work there and there are different, um, jobs in these garment factories that men tended to do, whereas women tended to be the ones like doing the sewing and the cutting and the trimming of these shirtwaists. And a shirtwaist is like a button up shirt that was fashionable in, in the, in the time period. The working conditions in this factory were intolerable for a lot of the women. Um, and I say that, uh, with a hint of, of questioning about the historical accuracy of that comment, because it is from the women themselves that we hear that it is intolerable, but obviously the employers do not think that it's intolerable and, um, because they continue on as usual. And um, so they go, so the women who work in the Triangle Factory in particular go on strike in 1909. And eventually this walkout expanded and it became this massive New York uprising where 20,000 women walk out of their garment factories. And that's a lot. Yeah. This is a massive women's movement, right? To I mean, that, that would cripple some businesses. That would cripple businesses, absolutely. And this is, and I, you know, in my class, to put it in context, this is not the first time people have walked out. This is part of, this is like right in step with all the labor movements that yeah. have gone on before this. I teach, um, you know, all of those different things. And I, I kind of end with triangle because, like you said, triangle 
results in so much change. And so it's nice to contrast triangle with some of those ones that came yeah. before. And I think the biggest difference is it's women that are doing this. Right. Right? Like that is so interesting. So 20,000 women walk out of their garment factories demanding change, demanding unions. Um, they want more money. They want to limit their work week to 52 hours, which like we live in a world where the 40-hour work week is like the norm. The right? standard. <laughs> the standard, yeah. Um, they want uh, a better way of dealing with the unemployment that came from seasonal shifts in, in right. the industry. Yeah. Um, and they want workplace safety. So, um, so I want to read a little bit from Clara uh, Lemlich, who is considered sort of the woman who launched, I mean, this is a women's movement. She is right. one, She's one of the leaders, many, but she is a leader. And, um, this was published in the New York Evening Journal in November of 1909. She says, first, let me tell you something about the way we work and what we are paid. There are two kinds of work, regular, that is salary work, and piece work. The regular work pays about $6 a week, and the girls have to be at their machines at 7 o'clock in the morning, and they stay at them till 8 o'clock at night, with just a half-hour lunch in that time. That's crazy. That's craziness. 11-hour days with a half-an-hour lunch. Um, the shops, well, there's just one row of machines that the daylight ever gets to. That is the front row nearest the window. The girls at the other rows of machines back in the shops have to work by gaslight by day as well as by night. Oh, yes, the shops keep the work going at night, too. The bosses in the shops are hardly what you would call educated men, and the girls to them are part of the machines that they are running. They yell at the girls and they call them down even worse than I imagine the Negro slaves were in the South. Whoa. I bet that's an exaggeration. I, yeah. I, well, you know, one of the things I've read about um, a lot of these factories too are the sexual violence that happened with a lot of these women, which was horrifying. Horrifying, yeah. There were several murders during this time period from women that worked in these factories that were never solved. And it happened in multiple factories in similar areas. Like, there were serial killers at this time. Oh, my it's crazy. So, um, the shops are unsanitary. Uh, that's the word that is generally used. But they ought to be worse. Uh, they, they need to use a worse word, she says. Whatever we tear or damage any of the goods we sew on, whatever is found damaged after we are through with it, whether we have uh, done it or not, we are charged for the piece and sometimes for a whole yard of the material. At the beginning of every slow season, $2 is deducted from our salaries. We have never been able to find out what this is for. Um, and so she goes on and on and on about, about the issues and okay. calls for a general strike. Sounds valid. Sounds pretty valid. <laughs> One thing that I think is really fascinating about their strike is that they get a lot, they're out for weeks, weeks and weeks. Can you imagine weeks and weeks without pay? Especially if you didn't know it was coming. Like, it sounds like this is a yearly event that 
you could try to plan for if you knew it was coming, but yeah. Yeah, no. this is not a yearly event. This is a very big and and sudden, I mean, not sudden, it's been building for a yeah. long time, but okay, you need to prepare and we are going on strike. And so weeks without work, these women are out. And lots of the factories eventually begin to agree to the demands and get the women back in and back yeah. to work. But okay. Triangle does not. And so the women stay out and they march and they march. And um, what's really interesting about this particular um, strike is that it gets the attention of a lot of people that are wealthy. Right. Um, the daughter of Vanderbilt, she's an heiress. Yep. She gets involved, which I thought was such a fascinating thing because we don't learn about a lot of really wealthy women in history class, right? You get the Henry Fords, you get the Vanderbilts, you get the Rockefellers, but you don't learn about the heiresses who are involved in these things. They're business savvy, they're charitable contributions, right? And what a cool way to bring in... Um, you know, what is the Vanderbilt legacy? What's continuing so it's, on? Her name's Cornelina Struzavant Vanderbilt. So so the challenge here, though, is like, is the are the working conditions in this factory actually as bad as the women are making it out to be? And the issue here is that, first of all, all these women walk out because across the board, this is just how that industry is run. Yeah. So... Not compared to present day, but compared to its time, these were actually some very modern buildings that they were working in, and they were working with some of the best machines of the era. Um, so, as far as the standards, like this is not sweatshop work for the era which is okay. hard. And the Smithsonian had an interesting article about it. They said it was a leader in the industry, not a rogue operation. It occupied um, 27,000 square feet on three four floors in brightly lit, which completely contradicts what the woman just said. Um, it's a 10-year-old building, so it's not old yeah, by any means. Yeah, that's brand new. Brand new. It employs about 500 workers, Triangle had modern, well-maintained equipment, including hundreds of belt-driven sewing machines um, mounted on long tables that ran from floor-mounted shafts. So, right, like this is, like it sort of paints this picture of like a modern industry yeah. for the era. So that's, that's kind of a tricky bit of, of this issue. So what happens? Well, the workers, um, they eventually get a little bit of a pay raise. And but nothing changes in terms of working conditions, and eventually they're forced to end the strike and just come back and take take the hit. So Ugh, they come back to work. That's discouraging. It is very shortly after that that they and and every the big thing the reason the strike is so important to this story is that. Everybody knows who these women are because they've been out on strike. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't even mention one really important detail. The owners of the Triangle Factory hired people to go out and roughhouse and, like, break up the strikers, beat them up. They sent prostitutes to, like, rile people up in the streets and make it very ruckus to, A, deter the women from striking, but, B, make them seem like they are a bunch of rabble-rousing crazies out in the street. Weird. I we can't relate that to anything happening nowadays. Right. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the women come back, and um, within a very brief amount of time, 
a cigarette um, butt is discarded on the factory floor and um, it catches all the, the cotton and the dust, it catches fire. And the women occupy a number of floors. The bosses are on the, one of the top floors. Mm-hmm. The people on the bottom level, when the fire happens, they call to the top floor and tell the bosses. The two bosses slip out the window into the neighboring building and are able to get down from there. The women um, in the, uh, that are now working in the floors above where this fire breaks out don't get any notification that there is a fire burning on the floors below them until smoke starts creeping up through the floor. So, okay, think about what wouldn't happen in a normal fire in any building today. You would run to the stairs, right? There were stairs, but the door to the stairs was locked. Why was the door to the stairs locked? Well, because the bosses had been searching all the women, and they were afraid that these women were stealing things from them. They were also trying to prevent them from taking too many bathroom breaks. So they locked the fire exit. There's an elevator, but the elevator, um, there's a, a whole thing in a minute. I'll read some of, the, some of the issues with the elevator. There's a fire escape out the building. So a bunch of women run out onto the fire escape. But the fire, there's, there's very little, right, laissez-faire economics. There's very little government enforcement of fire code. And so you've got a whole bunch of women out on the fire escape, and it literally peels off the walls on the outside of the building and collapses under the weight of the women on the fire escape. And so a lot of women fall to their death on the fire escape. Um, And so no stairs. There is an elevator, and it's going up and down very slowly, taking as many people as it can at a time. And the women are basically trapped on these top floors. It takes a while for the fire department to come. When the fire department arrives, their ladders don't reach to where some of the women are on the eighth and ninth floor. And so the women are stuck having to jump. They start holding out nets for the women, but the nets don't do anything, and the women still hit the ground and die. And so whether it's in the fire escape, in the elevator, or jumping for their lives, um, you know, women, we end up losing over 140 women in this factory fire. But women and men, but predominantly women. The youngest, um, and, you know, keep in mind, child labor laws are oh, yeah. very limited. And so there's lots of young ladies working in this, in this factory and many garment factories. And um, the youngest victim of the fire was 14 years old. Ugh. Just to, like, you know, put that. It's a child. It's a child. 14 years old, burning. So um, the New York Times, there's a whole bunch. Because this is such a major event, there are tons of primary sources available on the internet about these things. Cornell University pulled them all together in like a lib guide, which is really nice. Um, The New York Times on March 26, 1911, ran this story of just testimonies from eyewitnesses of, of the fire. According to several eyewitnesses, the flames were pouring from the windows and the girls jumping to the sidewalks for several minutes before the first fire truck with ladders arrived. Um, Benjamin Levy, he says that it was all of 10 minutes after the fire started before the first fire engine arrived. 
bodies were falling all around us and two or three of the men with me were knocked down. The girls were just leaped wild the girls just leaped wildly out of the windows and turned over and over before reaching the sidewalk. I only saw one man jump. All the rest were girls. They stood in the windows tearing their hair out in the handfuls and then they jumped. Ugh. A machine, um, and then they go on in this article to talk about how um, the elevators mechanics weren't going up and down, and and because um, there were two elevators, and like one was going up and one wasn't, it was just like on the ground, and so this elevator mechanic from a nearby building came running in to operate the other elevator, and like get that going um, to get people, but they the eventually like the mechanisms within the elevator stopped working uh, during the fire, and so people one woman like gr- you know probably many women grabbed on to the ca- the, the cord cable and just slid <clears throat> down but like butchered her hands in the process um but did live actually um you know there the people I mean they're just trying to do anything possible to get out of the building get out of the building yeah it's it's pretty horrifying um and I mean, it's just, and this article from the New York Times is pretty powerful in that it is just story after story from eyewitness talking about about all of these women falling. Um, a student saw girls rushing to the rear factory windows, their hair on fire. They paused at the window for a moment and then jumped out. I saw four men, he said, who tried to catch the girls. They seized a horse blanket from a truck in Waverly Place and held it out. It gave way like paper as the girls struck it. Oh, my God. So, this is a pretty, like, horrible event. The... American Federalist in May of 1911 ran an article that said, Dr. Chase Neal, United States Commissioner of Labor, speaking of the necessity for legal compensation or death uh, or injury by accidents, said, This is the only country in the world where an appeal for help has to be made following an industrial disaster. All countries where there is industrial advancement, such as we enjoy, have necessary machinery to provide for the victims without an appeal to charity. The fund of 30000 raised for the relatives of the recent factory fire in New York, where it does credit the charitable inclination of the citizens of New York, is an indictment of the maladjustment of our social system. I thought that was really powerful, coming from the Commissioner of Labor. Right. Like, what a crazy, crazy challenge. The trial that follows this event is uh, big news in New I York. can imagine that it's heavily emotional. The two bosses who fled the scene, right, many people, workers, and the newspaper and the media alike, blame these men for the fire, for not fixing the conditions that cause this sort of thing. Not okay. Fixing the safety regulations, bringing the building up to code at the time for fire, um, drilling the women on how to deal with fire, right? There were pails of water that were available in the corners of the room um, and, and were not utilized on the higher floors. Um, so, high drama trial that follows. 
Um, one of the big things is that the defense is, does a really good job when you are super wealthy. You can hire nice oh, lawyers. Sure. And so the defense does a good job dec- um, discrediting a bunch of the witnesses. I mean, there are over 100 witnesses who give testimony in this trial. And they discredit them by convincing the jury that they had um, been coached and memorized the tale that of this dra- of the prosecutors. Um, which is just really annoying. Um, well, and probably accurate. I mean, most witnesses that are getting up on the stand have been coached. Totally. And they should memorize what they're supposed yeah, to be and they should. Yeah, and they should. It's know. in the court. Right, <laughs> right. But also, a hundred witnesses. Um, there was also a technicality that the girls on the top floor did not know um, that, that – oh, sorry – Um, that the bosses did not know that the door was locked, and so how could they be responsible for something they didn't know about? Okay. Um, So uh, the Smithsonian said, although the justice system let the families of the workers down, widespread moral outrage increased demands for government regulation, which you saw in all these labor laws that followed. Um, The media at the time, though, attributed the cause of the fire to the owner's negligence. And I think that's important. The media is all over these people. And that probably, the media reaction to this probably contributed to the changes that we saw. Um, one of the stories that I think is is telling of how the media responded is the story in the Literary Digest. The title of it is... 147 dead, nobody guilty. Like, whoa. whoa. Opinions. <laughs> um, in, the, in this article, they said, nine months ago, 147 persons, chiefly young women and girls, were killed in, by a fire factory of the Triangle Waste Company at Washington Place and Green Street of New York. All of the subsequent evidence, as well as the facts of the tragedy, convinced the New York papers that this factory, where hundreds of girls were compelled by circumstance to work for their living, was a veritable fire trap. Though not worse, perhaps, than hundreds of buildings in the city. Last week, Isaac Harris and Max Blanc, owners of the factory uh, triangle company, under trial for manslaughter in the first or second degree, were acquitted by a New York jury on their third ballot after being out an hour and 45 minutes. While the press and the main seem inclined to accept the verdict itself without serious challenge, many papers are gravely troubled over its practical implication that no one is responsible for the wholesale slaughter, and the feeling is widely expressed that, whatever the explanation of the outcome, justice has been in fact balked. It is one of the, quote, disheartening failures of justice which are all too common in this country, declares the New York Tribune, which goes on to say, the point of view of those who must day after day submit themselves to risk similar to those which obtained in the, which obtained in the Triangle Factory and thus voiced in the New York call, there are no guilty, there are only the dead, and the authorities will forget the case as speedily as possible. Capital can commit no crime when it is in pursuit of profit. I mean, them's fighting words, but that's, it should be, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy to a huge number of people and families 
in your community and no one's responsible. And no one's responsible. And so I think the question that the the factory owners uh, and the newspapers and the victims' families have to grapple with is when we say... Tra- I don't think anybody disagrees on the word tragedy. Do But the disagreement comes from responsibility right. versus accident. And... Um, and I think when tragedy happens, people want somebody to be responsible for it. Oh, sure. And this same article goes on to basically say lots of people are responsible for it. All the government employees who did not hold them to the fire codes. Well, and this is where, like, OSHA comes in. Yeah. Um, and there starts to be people who reinforce this and where they go and how they keep their you know, their rating and, and how often they're inspected and the surprise inspections. These things now become commonplace, commonplace. after this happens. And, but there's, I mean, there's so many implications for this because you also have to remember, this is 1911. These women yeah. can't vote. Nope. The jury that uh, oversees this case is a jury of their peers, of their male peers. Right. And so not only are they wrapped up in this industrial system, but they're also wrapped up in a governmental system that doesn't even recognize their full citizenship. And so for immigrant women, this also becomes a rallying cry for suffrage. Uh, Yeah, 100%. Like, you don't care about us and you let us burn in a building. Yeah. So this is such an important topic to teach in school and there despite the fact that there are so many primary sources available about yeah. it there are no inquiries made by any of the major education companies so we made one nice. and it's up on our website <laughs> using awesome. some of these primary materials cuz it's such a rich topic and it needs to be taught well yeah in, absolutely in well and um the cool thing, too, is that they are still building the memorial, so they're still fundraising for that right now. Oh, nice. There's um, a placard that you can go see that documents what happened there in the location, but they're actually building a huge memorial at the foot of the building that um, now stands where the Triangle Factory originally stood. That's awesome. Yeah. So That's awesome. Donate. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Okay, so they can find this lesson plan on the website. On our website. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Kelsey. Brooke, thank you. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. (laughs) See you next time. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.